The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Episode 65. Hello and welcome to the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. If you've ever smiled at all about a bicycle in your life, this show is for you. I collect bicycle stories from around the world. I lovingly edit and produce them, all with the goal of bringing human beings from different bicycle tribes together through sharing stories. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or an expert. It doesn't matter if you prefer racing, riding, wrenching, or collecting. You're in the right place. This time, a story about traveling with a bicycle. A lot of us know how stressful that can be. And to be frank, a second story that's kind of got me shook a little bit about what are we really leaving behind on the road? You have a ton of podcasts and specifically bicycle podcasts to listen to out there. And I really appreciate you coming along with me for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. ever traveled with a bicycle before, you kind of make the trip with your heart in your throat. It doesn't matter if you're going to be going on a race, going for a triathlon, going on a long tour. The time that you spend waiting to see if your bike arrived okay, you're essentially holding your breath. There's only really two types of outcomes, or at least you could describe them that way. One outcome is that your bike arrives miraculously perfect everything's fine. The box may be beat up a little bit, but you look inside and your bike winks back at you. It's shining and gleaming and everything's perfect. The other camp of results is the bizarre damage that gets done to a bike in transit. On my way to Ragbri in Iowa back in 2019, my bike arrived in its box relatively okay, but then I noticed that the headset which I had disassembled and put on a tie wrap, a small part of it had been broken in a way that was incomprehensible as to how much pressure could have been applied to that small part within a box. I had to go buy another headset at the parts expo right next to the camping area just to be able to ride. When I did the end-to-end tour with a couple of my relatives, it was amazing how one person's box looked pristine and the other person's box looked like it had been through World War II. They had gone on the same flights. It leads a person with a good imagination to think that maybe two-thirds of the people who work with baggage handling are just incredibly nice, lovely people. But the remaining third is a hyper-intelligent group of trolls, literally giant trolls with huge intellects, and uh, they're all drugged up on something and, and driven crazy by electric shock, and they have a devious mind to be able to destroy things within the box. What lunchtime is like for the baggage handlers with the nice people mixing with the group of monstrous troll-like psychotic berserkers 
It must be an interesting lunch, to say the least. But as you set off on any trip, especially if you don't have a small Brompton and you're depending on somebody to show just a, a modicum of care, a modicum of love for your bike, having done it a few times, you feel such a sense of relief when you finally get to your location with an intact bicycle so that you can go on and do whatever crazy thing you're intending to do. So emotionally, the thousand mile tour, the race of a lifetime, all that's just an epilogue to actually transporting a bike safely from one place to another. Now, transporting a bike these days is such an emotional roller coaster for me. Imagine what it was like just a few years ago, but if you were trying to fly from the United States to Scotland with a high wheel penny farthing bicycle. These are the giant bicycles with a big giant front wheel, sometimes called a high wheeler or an ordinary or, or a penny farthing. And imagine trying to check that in a big giant wooden crate that's as big as you are at the airline counter. Well, that's exactly what our next guest did successfully. Legend. Well, hi, I'm Jim Langley, and I've been into cycling my entire life since I was a little kid, and I'm still in cycling, and I'm almost 70 years old. <laughs> And I love the sport, and I love the people in it. Tell me about Scotland. What happened? Well, you know, it goes back. I always wanted to own a high-wheel bicycle. A high-wheel bicycle, ever since I got into cycling anyway, high-wheel bicycle is this amazing contraption that the front wheel is almost as tall as a person is. Well, it's taller than some people and has a little tiny back wheel and you have to balance up high on this seat on the top of these things and you tower over cars and it's terrifying up there. It's like riding on the top of a ladder. And we found one of these bikes when I lived back in New Hampshire that was in an old barn and it was completely decrepit. But we pulled it out and looked at it and we marveled at it, but the person didn't want to sell it. So for the next decade, I tried to find one of these bikes and it turned out that when I came to California, where I live now, and went to work in a bike shop out here, the owner of the bicycle shop had one of these bikes. So I used to ask him at least once a week, will you sell me the high wheeler? They're also called ordinaries because in the 1870s to 1890, when they were popular, they were the most common bicycle on the road. So the owner of the bike shop would never sell me the bike. And I kept asking him, and one day I went to lunch and came back from lunch, and the high wheel that I had been asking to buy was in the back of a pickup truck. And I told the guy in the pickup truck, don't go anywhere. I ran inside and I grabbed the boss of my bike shop and I said, what are you doing? He said, I sold the bike to him. You couldn't pay for it, could you? <laughs> I said, what? I've been asking you all this time for that bike and you wouldn't sell it to me? And now you sell it to somebody off the street? And I, he says, well, what do you... How much do you want for it? And my boss says, $2,000. And I said, well, if that's what you need, I'll pay it. So that's how I ended up getting the high wheel bicycle from Roger. He went out and took it out of the guy's truck and he said, okay, Jim, since you work here, I'll sell you the bicycle. So I got the bicycle and after I left the bike shop job, I ended up working for Bicycling Magazine as an editor. And one day, 
a call came in from Scotland, and a guy in Scotland was putting on a festival to celebrate a famous man in Scotland called Kirkpatrick Macmillan, who the Scottish believe invented the bicycle in 1839. So they put together this big festival in a little uh, area called Trumfreshire, Scotland, which is based right on the grounds of a this beautiful they probably call it a mansion but to us uh, Americans when we see it we it looks like a like a castle a spectacular sandstone structure and it's got a big property and they were going to have a festival of all things antique cycling at this castle this would have been in around the early 1990s and they invited people from all around the world into antique cycling to go there as part of it, they reached out to magazines, and my editor knew that I had this high-wheel bicycle and asked me, would you like to go to this festival? So I, of course, said, absolutely. <laughs> so in order to go to this festival, I had to first figure out how I was going to get the bike there. You know, they're huge. They don't fit in a standard cardboard bike box, and they weigh about 60 pounds. I came up with the idea that I would build a big wooden box for the bicycle to protect it. Remember now, I paid a whopping $2,000 for this bike, and to get it ready, I invested a lot of time, and I'd spent some money to have some custom parts machines so they were exactly like the original parts that had been broken on the bike over the years. I had to figure out how to put a new saddle on it, which was leather, and the, one of the pedals was missing, so it took some work to put it together, and I didn't want it to get wrecked on the airplane. So a friend of mine who I rode bikes with was a contractor and he heard about what I was doing. He said, hey, I'll build you a box. He came over and he made me this magnificent box. Well, when he got done, the box was so heavy, we couldn't move it. <laughs> So we put wheels on the bottom of the box. It was the only way we could move the box. And I said, well, this is never going to go, you know. They're never going to put this on the airplane. So I reached out to other people going to this event in the United States, and it turned out, yes, people were putting heavy boxes with the big bikes inside them on the airplane, and I just had to get a ticket on a certain size plane. I forget if the term was jumbo jet or whatever it was but you just needed to go to a plane that was the right size so i got a ticket on one of these big airplanes and i had the box and i managed to get the box in the back of a van actually our van at bicycling magazine and i drove up with the bike in the box to san francisco airport i got the box out of the back of the van with the bike in it which was not easy actually had to take the bike out of the box so I could take the box out. It was in two pieces, the box. And then I was able to put it there on the curb, and I waited for the long-term parking shuttle to show up. When the guy shows up, of course, the box wouldn't fit in the shuttle. So I had to put the thing back in the van, and I had to drive to the curb, park at the curb, and try to check in with this big box. Of course, the police wouldn't let me park at the curb. <laughs> so I left the box at the curb, drove it, drove back to long-term parking, got on the shuttle, went back to the airport, and luckily the box was still there with the bike in it. Nobody had taken it, of course. It was too heavy. So I go up to the gate, 
to check in with the bike and the check-in person at the ticket counter takes one look at me, takes one look at the box and says, that box is not going on the plane. And I said, I said, well, I, I called, I checked, I, I read up on it and you said you take bicycles. And he said, that's not a bicycle. <laughs> so I opened the box and I showed him, I said, yes, it is a bicycle. <laughs> So, a half hour later, after arguing with three different people at the counter, the people at the airline said, okay, we're going to ask somebody on the runway loading the plane if they can load the box. And we waited and waited. I'm sweating bullets because it's only like 15 minutes for the plane to leave and my bike's not on the plane yet. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm getting to Scotland with my bike. All of a sudden, this door opens, like one of these secret doors over on the side. And this guy in a blue jumpsuit with headphones comes out, takes about 10 steps towards the counter, looks at the people that are stonewalling me and not letting me check my bike. And then he looks at the box. Then he looks back at them, and he just makes this motion like, give me a break. Why are you hassling that guy? And he just goes back out, and he shuts the door and the guys at the counter are like well i didn't know uh, okay so they say all right you're good and i'm like how much does it cost and they go it's free it doesn't cost anything <laughs> it's a bicycle <laughs> so after all that, so after all that they load the bike on the plane and i'm looking out the window the whole time trying to see if i could see the big box coming out and going up the ramp but i, I never saw it So we land in Scotland. I forgot to tell you that my wife came along. She'd never been to Scotland. My middle name is McClellan, so I'm part Scottish. So I really was excited to get there. And my wife is part Scottish too. We get to the airport. We landed in Glasgow. We're waiting for the bike to come out. And finally, it's like the last thing off the plane. And we're jet lagged. We're not feeling very good. I was so worried. And to see it come rolling along, I was so happy until I noticed that the wheels were completely gone and that the box had this hole in the side of it the size of a large pizza. You could see right in at the bike. And I thought, oh my God, they've wrecked my bike. They smashed the box. They've bent the frame. I won't be able to ride it. So frantically, I opened the box up and the bike was okay. It was not damaged. So now we're in the Glasgow airport and all we got to do is get to the event. And when the promoter had told us he was going to pick us up at the airport but of course he wasn't there we couldn't figure out for the life of us how to use the scottish money to use the payphone <laughs> and finally somebody came over and helped us out we couldn't reach anybody at the event so we had to rent a truck in scotland to get this bike up the road to the castle where the event was was happening this turned out to be a great thing because a week later when we were coming back from the event, all the other people that needed to ride to the airport were so happy to tag along with us <laughs> with their big bikes. <laughs> so we were celebrities once everybody realized we had this big truck 
that we paid an arm and a leg for. It's actually Bicycle Magazine paid for it. <laughs> I expense accounted it, which uh, I got in trouble for later, but it was too late to do anything about. There were a lot of big events during the week at the KM150 Cycling Festival. One of them was the, an international history conference where curators from museums around the world showed up and they were going to discuss the Kirkpatrick Macmillan, the first bicycle that the Scots believed was invented in their country. And these curators were from all over, from the Netherlands, from Japan, from the United States. They all put their heads together in this conference the first couple days of the week. I wasn't part of the conference. We were all assembling and, and polishing our bicycles. I think there were about 100 people there from countries around the world, everybody with their own spectacular vintage bicycle restored, or some of them were original. In the meantime, this history conference was going on, very hush-hush, when they came out of it. Just to give you an idea of how celebrated this uh, Kirkpatrick Macmillan bicycle was, a famous museum curator in Holland had actually had three reproductions made of this bicycle at great expense. A super cool bicycle because it doesn't have pedals. It has uh, treadles, big platforms. Have you ever seen a uh, elliptigo, one of those bicycles? It's like an exercise machine that goes down the road where you sort of push on these big levers. You sort of jump up and down. That's sort of what this bike works like, but all wood, really spectacular. Well, this museum curator had had these made at great expense to bring to the event to show off to everybody so you could see what they would a modern recreation would actually look like. So it was devastating when the consensus of all these history experts, it came out of their big meeting, and one of the decisions they made, one of the conclusions they came to was that the bike that the Scots believe was in, was the first bicycle never actually existed. <laughs> that it's just rumor and a story that was passed down over time, but it was wasn't actually factual. It didn't actually exist. So that sort of put a damper, and people were all the Scots and people who believed in the bike were in a bad mood <laughs> after that came down. So that was one of the highlights or lowlights of of the week. But we had a great time in Scotland because it doesn't get dark until midnight or after. And so we were riding our antique bicycles. We had a uh, parade through Glasgow and we had another parade through Edinburgh, which was Edinburgh, which was spectacular. I mean, you can't imagine how much fun it is to ride through a city center with such a historic city center with double-decker buses on your high-wheel bicycles with a, the policeman leading the way to shut down intersections so you have safe passage, which is spectacular. You know, on a high-wheel bicycle, you, you barely have brakes. You can't get on and off at stop. You can't balance or put your foot down at stop signs or red lights. So it was a great to have policemen stopping, or the bobbies, I guess, stopping traffic and allowing you to just keep riding. We had a great time. end of the week, the big event or the highlight for most of the people that brought high-wheel bikes was to try to ride an official century 100 miles in Scotland on your high-wheel bike. 
Now, I hadn't done any special training for this, but I had gone to great effort to get my bike to the point where I could ride it. The only problem was I hadn't practiced very much getting on and off the bike, and I wasn't a very good high-wheel bike rider. There were people at this event like Peter Matthews, an amazing trick rider from Ireland, who could do things like lie flat on his saddle. I remember he's six feet in the air and he's lying flat across his saddle with his feet facing forward and he's riding down the road on his high wheel bicycle. He could do all kinds of tricks like that, just amazing stuff on his high wheel. I could barely get on my high wheel and get off without falling down. And so I was really a little worried about this 100-mile ride on the high wheel, but I was determined that I was going to do it. We had the big meeting the night before the high wheel ride, and John Pinkerton, who was the head of the whole organization, standing up on stage, I raised my hand, and to ask a question, John called on me, and I said, John, is the course marked? Now, I don't know if you've ridden these group rides or century rides or Grand Fondos in America, but if you have, usually they put route markers. They paint them on the road in chalk so it goes away later. There's lots of different ways they do it, but basically you don't have to carry a map or look at a map. Just follow marks on the road or signs on the road. So I asked John Pinkerton in Scotland, I said, John, is the course marked? Because on a high-wheel bicycle, if you take your hands off the handlebars and you're a rookie rider like I was, you're probably going to crash. And if you crash from that height, what what usually happens is you break your neck. (laughs) So I asked John, was the course marked? Which I was hoping he was going to say yes. But instead, he looked at me and he said, silly journalist, we don't mark courses in Scotland. (laughs) Use your map. And I'm like, a map? What am I going to do? Stop? I didn't say this, but I was thinking, what am I going to do? Stop? Get off? Pull the map out of my pocket? Open it up and look at it? I'll lose 15 minutes every time there's a turn in the road. So I figured I'm just going to have to follow somebody and hope that they know where they're going. That's what I did the next morning when we took off. There was probably only 15 of us, but we were a hardy group. There were a couple from Switzerland. There was another American. There was a couple of Czechs. And we took off together, but we were soon separated, and it was kind of a small group. But early on, not too far away from the castle, I was just getting used to rolling along on this humongous 60-pound machine, quite happy that it was working well. The guy next to me who was, I think he was from Scotland, it might have even been John Pickerton because he started the ride, hollered out, sleeping policeman. And I thought to myself, sleeping policeman? Uh, hello? I don't think I'm going to get a ticket out here, am I? And we come down this little hill with a good bit of speed, and I realized that a sleeping policeman is a speed bump. So, you know, if you hit a speed bump in a car, you even even going slow, it's quite a jolt. On a high-wheel bicycle, it's the worst possible obstacle because when you're sitting on the top of a big, giant wheel like this, if you hit something at the base of the wheel, 
The tip-over point is right at 12 o'clock, which is exactly where you're sitting. And there's no easy way to get over one of these things. You can't jump up in the air like a good mountain biker can to get over it. You couldn't go around it. If you try to stop and you slow down, you better just get off the bike because that's more likely you're going to fall on your face. Before I left the United States, I asked my friend who was a really good high wheel rider, what do I do if I run into trouble like a dog gets in front of me or a, a, there's a branch or something falls down? And he said, Jim, your, on, your only hope is to pedal right over it. Keep pedaling, don't stop pedaling. That's what I did. I just hit the gas and pedaled. I hit that speed bump. And it was a kerpow, but I made it over it, and I didn't crash. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> we proceeded eventually finish the ride. It took us over 15 hours to ride 100 miles. We got lost about three times. But fortunately, the, the two Swiss guys were expert at finding their way. And even though we got lost and rode much further than we should have, we did get back in time for dinner, which was good because we were starving. And the dinner was spectacular. They had rounded up about 50 antique bicycle lights. They basically burn a, a gas. So they make this beautiful uh, orange flame that flickers. And they had put these around the hall where we were eating dinner. And I remember walking in and being just completely bonked from the ride, exhausted, but really wanting to have some tasty food. I ended up falling asleep at the dinner table, basically went back and went to bed in the bed and breakfast because I was too tired to even eat. But it was a spectacular day of riding, and the, the people there were, were magnificent. Then the following night was another great night because we met at a uh, lawn bowling club, which had a pub attached. And there were probably 30 people in there from from different countries, and we'd all grown fond of each other because we've been riding bicycles these antique bicycles all week and doing the best we could to communicate with our broken english or with our broken sign language <laughs> whatever it took to communicate but we had the common language of bicycles so people we we got the point across when we needed help fixing things or or whatever was happening during the week but in the pub it just felt like we were good friends, even though we'd only been riding together for a week. And it was, everybody was uh, buying everybody else pints and uh, it was a great scene. Somebody started singing one of the, one of their songs uh, and people started singing their songs. So a, a Swiss song or a German song or a Czech song. And we all did the best we could to hum along and sing along. It was, it was really nice. And we felt like we'd gone through something together, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It was a great, a great feeling. So fast forward to the airport the next day, and I got the bike back in the box. I got it back in the truck, and we had other people along now heading to the airport back in Glasgow. I actually made the slight mistake of driving right up on the highway. It was about 4.45 in the morning, and I drove right up on the highway, and the other people in the truck, most of them were asleep, so nobody noticed, but 
I didn't realize it, but I was going the wrong way on, on the highway. I was driving like I was in America. So I was on the wrong side of the road in this big van, in the pitch dark, and there was uh, nobody to tell me that I was on a, I could get killed any second, except that somebody, I forget who it was, woke up in the back of the van, realized what was going on, yelled at me, and luckily we avoided disaster and pulled across onto the other side of the road that headed the right direction. I get to the airport, I've got this big box, and of course I'm thinking, well, it's Scotland. You know, everybody's been so nice. We've been here for a whole week. I'll bet that I'm going to get up there and, you know, I can just check the bike. And so I get up to the front of the line with my big box and my wife, and we're standing there. The guy behind the counter takes one look at me, takes one look at the box, and he goes, that is not going on the plane. And I'm like, oh, no, not again, thinking, what could I say? You know, what can I do? And I think, well, I look at the guy, and I go, well, I got it here, didn't I? And that just stops him. And he has this huge smile, and he goes, well, you got me there. And he just checks me in, nice as you please, free bike travel. It was awesome. It was one of the best cycling weeks I ever had. Thank you very much for that story. That was really amazing. I tensed up when you were talking about the sleeping policeman at the bottom of the hill because having ridden a high wheel just a little bit on the flats, I was terrified what was going to happen there. But I'm glad you (laughs) survived that. You have an amazing YouTube video on how to build wheels. I was watching it and it was really accessible. So anybody from a first timer, I've got extra wheels for anybody in Connecticut. I think I have enough (laughs) under my deck to supply anybody who wants to practice building a wheel. But if you've ever wondered how just a few spokes, a hub and a rim can go together to make this beautiful machine wheel, uh, you have a great video. Your voice, the voice that you're using to speak with, not just the tone of it, but the target, your demeanor, it's very welcoming. It's not condescending at all. You know, wheel building is something that people come off as being like some type of monk on a mountain type of thing where he smacks you with the bamboo because you didn't (laughs) pick the right spoke length. And and yours (laughs) is very the opposite of that, which is great. Yeah, I think I think anybody that wants to can fix bikes, and that's the great thing about them. I mean, they're getting harder to fix, right, with with hydraulics oh and electronics and stuff. But at their at their basic level, they're they were designed for anybody to be able to to use them and ride them and maintain them and keep them going. That's what makes them so much better, user friendly than uh, cars and stuff. So. It's what drew me to bicycles, and I think it draws a lot of people to bicycles. So I like to share, you know, that I like to help people out. And uh, wheels—they're not—they're not really complicated. They're kind of like knitting or something, you know. If you learn, you learn the, the basic steps. Anybody can do it. So, yeah, I, I didn't know if that video was going to be well received at all. I was sort of blown away that it took off, but 
I'm really happy about it, and I try to let people know about it because so many people are intimidated by the idea. You shouldn't be intimidated by wheel building. You, most people, I mean, it's very rare that I ever tried to show somebody how to do it the way they just said, "I can't do this," and they they walked away. Almost, almost every. I can't think of one person. They, they all managed to make wheels. I recommend people to do that. But where where could people go to find out more of your stuff? Well, you could. Thanks for the YouTube pitch because I've been putting a lot of efforts towards there because video is so popular now for learning how to do things. I use it all the time, so I wanted to have a channel because I've been fixing bicycles my whole life and wanted to share it with people. I've been working hard on my YouTube channel and、uh, have a lot about wheel building, but I'm starting to branch out to other things. Bicycle repair and and other things, product reviews. So, if you just search on Jim Langley Bicycle, I'll, my channel will come right up. And I also have an extensive website, which is just my name, jimlangley.net. And I'm currently and have been a long time、uh, technical editor for RoadBikeRider.com. We have a we have a weekly newsletter that's free. It comes out every Thursday in your email, and I have a column in there called Jim's Tech Talk, where I talk about recent、uh, technical topics, bike repairs, part of it, but all kinds of things technical. And I am on Twitter. That's about my only social media that I do. And I still have a few books out there on eBay, but the repair books are a little dated now. And、uh, but people still find them. And they're still helpful if you're working on older bicycles. So that's a, those are the basic ways to, to to follow me and support me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hopefully, we'll have you again someday. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. It was great being here. It's time for the mid-roll gratitudes. I got an email this month from a person who was in the ICU after an incident, and they said listening to the show helped them take their mind off of being stuck in the hospital. I, I can't even explain how good that makes me feel. I really appreciate that person reaching out to tell me that, and I hope you a speedy recovery. Other folks have been putting out stickers in the responsible sticker army. You know, mostly putting stickers where there's already stickers. Not putting them directly onto a police car. I appreciate all those folks helping me to organically and honestly spread the word about the show. If you want stickers totally free, you can email me at bikekarmaguy@gmail.com or DM me on any social media, and I will send you enough to share around. Thanks to everybody sharing and spreading the word on social media, and folks for following on all the different platforms that we're on. For following on Podbean, thank you very much to Robbie. Michelle Pack, Mark Coleman, Nifikpinner Two, and Troy Rob. This month's free and simple ask, please and thank you, is to go to Google Podcast and listen to the show once on Google Podcast. But regardless, thank you for listening or following anywhere. If you would like to financially help the show, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. 
Just go to Patreon and search up Bike Karma. There you'll join my small but highly appreciated group of Patreons, including Captain Walker's Bicycles in Australia. These folks help me to pay for the free stickers and the other costs associated with the show, and I really appreciate all of them. Thank you. Big thank you to Loveland Cycles. They're always reposting stuff that I pop up. Thank you. And no mid-roll thank you would be complete without talking about Fred Thomas at The Frame and Wheel. Fred has been a friend and supporter of the show. His business, The Frame and Wheel, can save you time, space, and cash. If you have any bicycles, accessories, parts, tools, and you keep thinking that you're going to get rid of them, you're not using them, but you haven't yet, that's where Fred comes in. Fred is a black belt at online selling. His photography skills are second to none. He can make a crank arm look like a supermodel. Now you might be thinking, well, I can do all that myself. Well, sure, but you haven't. You would then have to deal with the shipping, people who are trying to get something for nothing on eBay, the agonizing deciding what price to ask, and it's really unlikely that you're gonna take pictures as good as Fred does. Now, of course, he gets his cut, but he also gets really good prices for what he sells. People are willing to buy from Fred because he describes everything. People know when they order from the Frame and Wheel store, they're going to get exactly what's described. And with his reputation as a knowledgeable bicycle expert, people are willing to pay a premium even though they're still getting a great deal on a part, or a bicycle, or an accessory. Fred's a nice guy, and he knows what he's doing. He's fair, and he can get you more time, space, and cash. So check out the frame and wheel, whether you're buying or looking to sell some bicycles, equipment, and accessories. Now back to the show. Hello, hello. This is Seven from sunny California and I run the Sprocket Bike Marketplace app. I'm here to give you your ABC quick check. So the first thing I want you to do is squeeze those tires and see how firm they feel. Then pump them up anyway. I've broken the kneecap over this. There is no reason you should have the same happen to you. Next, check those brakes. Squeeze on the brake levers and push the bike forward. Then squeeze on them again and push it backwards. Make sure there's no funny business going on there. C. Check the chain, the crank, cogs, basically the whole drivetrain, and make sure everything is in full working order. For the quick, is the quick release check. Go over all your quick releases on your brakes, on your wheels, and anywhere else you might have them, and make sure they're nice and snug, make sure they're in their closed position, and make sure absolutely under no circumstances are there no parts of them missing. And anyway, after that, uh, before you roll, just Get on the bike and start off slow. Be attentive to sounds, pay attention to the way the bike feels and rides, and stop and look again at your bike if anything feels off. This has been the ABC Quick Check. Thanks for taking a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Off you go. So I do like to ride with a group of close friends that I have, but a lot of time I go riding by myself. Those solo rides are a great chance for me to just let go of whatever's bothering me and recharge, recenter. Well, I was out on a ride a couple of months ago 
and I have all these little side routes that I take through the suburbs. You know, the places where you hide little Strava roots so that nobody else can find them, except this one guy called the hyena. And I'm about 20 minutes out and I'm starting to feel better. My shoulders are starting to loosen up. I'm starting to get my stride. And then all of a sudden it happens. I start feeling anxious and frustrated out of nowhere. I look around, there's nothing wrong with my bike, there's nothing wrong with the weather, there's no one even around. But in my mind's eye, for some reason, I start thinking about this lady who's been bothering my mom. Like so many other families, we're dealing with my mom's Alzheimer's. And my mom had one local friend, and I'm doing friend in quotes right now, who ever since she got the diagnosis, has been whipping her into a frenzy every chance she got. First trying to tell her she doesn't really have Alzheimer's and then getting her worried about bills and money and bank accounts, trying to turn her against her doctors and us. I mean, dealing with Alzheimer's and a loved one, as many of you know, is challenging enough without having a negative energy bully busybody. I mean, we've tried to look at it in a positive way. We've tried to be very zen about it. We've tried to say, oh, this is just some misguided way that she's showing how she loves my mom as a friend. But even with trying to view it compassionately, it's not really happy or healthy for anybody to whip people up. So anyway, out of nowhere on this ride, I start getting angry again at this person. And about five minutes of that goes by before I stop and really, really wonder where the heck did that come from? I took a deep breath and closed my eyes. I looked at the pavement, I looked at the houses, and I looked back down the incline I had just biked up. And it hit me. A couple weeks prior to this ride had been a really bad week with this lady. She had been driving my mom around to banks and as my mom described, trying to bully her into doing all these things and going all these places. And it made me really upset. And I had gone for a bike ride that week. And on this little hill is where I had let it go, or so I thought. But when I let my frustration go, where did it go? I hadn't been back to the stretch of road since that. And now the first time that I'm back, out of nowhere, I get hit with these angry feelings at the exact same place that I let them go the last time. Now there's a couple of different explanations for this and one's much more scientific than the other one. The less scientific one is that I just left my bad energy all over the road. And the next time I went down that same road, I drove through it again. That's not really super scientific, but in the moment there on the hill, it was so out of nowhere. That's what it felt like happened. I guess the more scientific explanation would be that there was a visual cue and that having those emotions at that particular place and then being at that place again triggered those memories of the previous time that I was there. I mean, that makes sense. When I'm biking, I often listen to podcasts and audiobooks and sometimes without even trying, as I go past that same place again a few months later, I'll remember exactly where in the audiobook I was or exactly what podcast I was listening to. Sometimes I'll even remember what the person was saying. And I couldn't do it if you like question me on it, but just riding along passively, it just floats right back into my head. So either one of those explanations could be true. And despite all my science teacher knowledge, 
I'm kind of going for an explanation halfway in between the two. Regardless, I hope that lady the best, and I do not want to stay angry at this person. I've driven on that same stretch of road subsequently without any of this happening. And on another note, my mom is doing great in assisted living. She's made a group of really positive friends, and she's in a better placement all around. Shout out to everybody at Cedar Mountain Commons. But in my mind, now I'm gonna wonder, when people say leave it all on the field, or leave it all on the road, or leave it all on the trail, what are we actually leaving behind? If you have any examples of experiences like that, please email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or you can also call the studio line at 860-740-2813. Thank you for coming along for the ride on another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I've been your host, Tom Brown. Our opening and closing theme music comes from Keller Glass and the band Mob Jack. We are really grateful to Keller for letting us use the music that is so fitting for our show's opening and closing themes. If you'd like to go check out the full album, or if you'd like to go see what he's working on now, you can either check out mobjackmusic.com, look at Mobjack, or look up Keller Glass. You'll be glad you did. All the other music in the show is from royalty-free, attribute-free sources, and we appreciate those musicians as well. The rest of the content on the show is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyrights, trademarks, etc., are asserted and reserved. If you have suggestions for the show, have a question, think you might have a story for the show, want some stickers, or perhaps you have a product that you think might be a good fit for endorsement on the show, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Thanks again to our guest storytellers on today's show and to all those storytellers who are waiting with their stories in the queue for production. I try and put a little love into each segment, so thank you for your patience. In addition to the ABC Quick Check this time, I want to do a little safety reminder. As it's finally starting to rain again in some places, be careful of the painted stripes on the road. While it's all slippery after it first rains, those stripes can get much more slippery than the rest of the road at some points. Same goes for metal, like train tracks and sewer covers, so stay safe out there. Until next time, keep it wheel.